All right, folks, this show is sponsored by Anchor. A while back, we switched over to Anchor as our hosting platform for Panel to Panel. And to be honest, it's actually been one of the best experiences we've had when it comes to hosting our podcast. A lot of people think making a podcast is super difficult, but Anchor actually allows you to record and edit your podcast all on your phone if that's what you want to do. Anchor even helps you get your podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other places like that. That way you can get your podcast to a wide audience of different people. And the best part about it, it's totally free. So go ahead, check out Anchor.fm, or download the Anchor app on your phone or through the App Store or the Google Play Store and check it out today. Now let's turn the page and get to this week's episode of Panel to Panel. people of the internet it is time for on comics grounds.com's flagship podcast panel to panel where a bunch of folks shoot the breeze and talk about comic books and such we are here in our new format we are available on itunes stitcher radio spotify and google Podcasts for you to enjoy and a couple other ones that are connected to itunes as well you can look into that for your information like uh, to check us out on those different sources don't forget to follow us on twitter and instagram at on comics ground and follow the podcast on twitter at ptp underscore podcast my name is James Portis. I am one of your hosts. My other two co-hosts, Mary and Travis, are not here this time. But I almost said this evening, but it is not evening for once. We are not recording at night. That is a new thing like for today. But we are here, and I have some special guests with me from the website on comicsground.com and some of our other podcasts that we have going on. So to my left, we have the man, the the, 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 the host, the web slinger himself, Alec Thorne, here from Living on the Edge, our sister podcast. How you doing today? Hey, I'm doing really good. What's up, guys? My name is Alec. I run Living on the Edge, which is our site Spider-Man podcast. We actually just had our last episode come out um, two weeks ago, yes. a little a little less than two weeks ago. But um, you can actually catch that on Google Play, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. Um, we actually just hit 100 followers on our Twitter account, so Ooh, that was nice. That was one, yeah. That was one of the goals I set with James for September, and I wasn't thinking we'd actually make it, but somehow we did. Um, yeah. So if you want, you can follow that. You can follow that Twitter page. It's at lot underscore podcast, and you can follow me on Twitter at the Alec Thorne, and also check out the stuff I write on the website. I write reviews for Spidey Man and Venom, and um, and I do some editorials, and I actually reviewed Spencer and Locke, which, are, which we will get into in a sec. I'm not going to spoil yeah. it. Yes, yes, yes. And to my right, we have our creative director and senior editor and one of the hosts of our Star Wars podcast, Aggressive Negotiations, and our uh, comic, and Comics and Politics, I cannot st- talk today, Comics and Politics uh, podcast, Seduction of the Innocent. Kai Kiriyama, how are you doing this evening? I'm, I'm sleepy. <laughs> <laughs> 
I feel you. I feel you. <laughs> I'm not caffeinated enough for this yet. Hey, I got my Diet Coke right here. I was, I, I was, I, I played ahead. See, I got one too. So we're good to go. Hey. Um, I'm good though. I'm good. All right, cool. And then, as Alec hinted at, we have our special guest. Um, he is here. He is the writer of uh, amazing, amazing titles that are come, that are available right now at your local comic book shop. The newest one just dropped this past week with Going to the Chapel, uh, the number one that just dropped, and his like his acclaimed series, Spencer and Locke, that just wrapped up its second volume. David Papos, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing great. Thank you guys so much for having me. A uh, huge fan of what you guys have, have, have done. And so a uh, real pleasure to be on the podcast today. Thanks again for having me. All right. All right. And this is going to be just a like a nice candid conversation about what you've been doing in terms of comics. Yeah. Uh, why, why don't uh, we start off uh, with Spencer and Locke? Alec, why don't you holler at him about the, this amazing series? All right. So, um, you know, I've done a bit of an interview with David um, a, a few months ago, a little bit of one, which um, thank you so much for doing, by the way. Oh, it was like, my that pleasure. Was, that I, was great. Yeah. I had such a blast. Thank you. So for, for chat, for part two of this, let's yeah. um, I uh, just want to ask what it is, what has it been like to see all of these reactions to both volumes of Spencer and Locke and how popular the, the, um, the comic has become? Um, it's you know it's been beyond my wildest dreams uh you know it's so encouraging not just to see how much people enjoyed the first volume but to see uh when volume two is coming out seeing new fans discover the first volume and uh sort of uh building upon that pre-existing fan base and uh, the thing about spencer and Locke is our our fans are really ride or die um they are very vocal i mean it's it's our fan base that's the reason why volume one was nominated for five ringo awards last year um and so you know it, it it's I, I couldn't be uh, more grateful to uh, our readers and retailers who supported us and the press who supported us. Um, you know, we really, this was uh, me and, and artist Jorge Santiago Jr. This, this was both our first direct market books. Um, and this was my first book in general. And so um, to see people really um, uh, uh, fight in the trenches for us and really kind of push us uh, well outside of our, our coverage zone, um, I couldn't be more, more thankful or grateful. And I, I what's been so encouraging uh, for, for me on the creative side is seeing how much our team has really leveled up uh, you know, between volume one and two. And, um, you know, we, we, we've been talking, we've got some plans, uh, for, you know, for some future collaborations. Uh, I, I can't confirm or deny whether or not those are Spencer and Locke. Ooh. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, we, we got some, we got some cool stuff in, in the hopper. Um, uh, you know, I've been a little underwater, uh, just getting chapel out of the door and, um, and finishing uh, my script on my, uh, my upcoming series, Grand Theft Astro. But um, yes, we, we soon soon I will be coming back up for air, and I'll be able to hunker down on the scripts that I owe Jorge and company. Uh, but yes, it's just uh, it's been I, I, I can't I can't even describe what it feels like. I I was I was talking in another interview earlier this week that I never thought I'd be a comics writer. Um, it, the the idea kind of was almost forbidden to me. I, I grew up in Missouri, where you know. Uh, being a, a creative, uh, uh, you know, uh, that that being your full time job, that just never happened. That just didn't seem real. And uh, even when I got my start uh, interning at DC Comics in college, um, even then I thought, well, if I wanted to have a stable career, I'd try to be an editor. 
And so sort of, you know, I kind of fell into writing this almost on half on accident and half as a dare to myself. And the fact that people really just responded to it um, is incredible. And, and like I said, we couldn't be more grateful. And um, so thank you to everyone who's, who's bought my books and supported our books because uh, you guys put me on a career path and I, I can't thank everybody enough for it. Yeah. That, I'm sorry. I'm bad with words, but no, no, um, not at all. no, like, yeah, man, like what you have done is just extraordinary. Like these two volumes of Spencer and Locke and going to the chapel, it's all amazing. Thank you. And yeah, no I, problem. It, you know, the thing is, is, is that um, that's the, the best part about being in, in the creator owned sphere is that nobody is sort of beating down your door with a time frame. Um, and so that gives us, I think, a little bit more wiggle room and a little bit more time to, to fine tune the, the, the book and make sure that it's something that we all feel really good about and comfortable with. Um, my, my thought is people have told me at conventions, oh, do you work in sales? You'd be a really great salesperson. And I say, no, I'd be a terrible salesperson because I can, I can only sell stuff that I believe in. And uh, that's the thing is I, I am a true believer when it comes to Spencer and Locke and Spencer and Locke too and going to the chapel because we were able to have the time to uh, really, you know, make this book the best it possibly could be. And I've been so fortunate to be working with uh, with with art teams that are so talented that it honestly doesn't matter what I write because the art looks so good that people will buy it regardless. So, you know, Jorge Santiago Jr. and Jason Smith on Spencer and Locke and and Gavin Guidry and and Elizabeth Kramer on going to the chapel. Um, I feel like if I've got one strength um, as, as a creator, it's not so much my writing. It's as much as I think I've got a pretty good eye for up and coming talent. And so being able to kind of work with these people and say, hey, this is your direct market debut or some, you know, in some cases, you know, maybe they've had a few titles under their belt, but nothing's really sort of popped for them. It's uh, it's kind of exciting to say, all right, guys, like I'm going to go all in and I know you guys are going to leave it all on the field, which means I'm going to leave it all out in the field when it comes time to promote this book. Yeah, absolutely. Like it, it definitely means a lot that you are seeking out like yeah these well, people to help to help create these titles it's it's astounding I, I assume it's astounding for them too i you know i i i have the feeling that they probably during the process are like what's up with this guy uh like does he actually know what he's talking about and then i always tell them i just say i just say trust just trust me um when the book comes out it'll all make sense and um that has been that has been the case for me ever since i was in college i I directed a few plays in college and i feel like a lot of the actors that i worked with they're like this feels really counterintuitive and i was like no 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 just just trust me on this and always opening night they'd be like oh i get it now i totally get it now um and uh that's that's kind of a that's kind of a cool process and i i I, uh, so much of it is rolling the dice and so much of it is just pure luck on my part um i've been just really really fortunate and really lucky and um you know it's uh you know i I, i'm gonna ride that 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 lucky streak as long as i can um yeah yeah absolutely 
Okay, so wait, James, do you want me to go through all my questions? I'm sorry. Well, well, one thing that I, I want to get out of the way real quick is for, for, a lot okay. of, for a lot of people that don't know about Spencer and Locke specifically, sure. like, would you be able to like give people like like the quick like debrief about what this Absolutely. book is about? That way, if they go into a comic shop and they see this on a shelf, they w would have some interest or have an idea of what they're getting themselves into. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, you know, for for those who aren't familiar with uh, with my book Spencer and Locke, the the easy elevator pitch is: What if Calvin and Hobbes grew up in Sin City? Uh, it, it's about a hard-boiled detective Locke, whose uh, partner happens to be his childhood imaginary panther Spencer. Uh, they're they're in our first volume. They're investigating the murder of Locke's childhood sweetheart uh, Sophie Jenkins, and they wind up sort of finding themselves in the middle of kind of this uh, a, a criminal conspiracy from a, a local drug cartel. And our recent sequel that uh, just came out, we we kind of took that uh, funny pages approach, and we took we kind of took the fables approach with it. So every comic strip was fair game. So we pit our our hard boiled Calvin and Hobbes analogs against uh, a hardcore Beetle Bailey named Roach Riley. And I, I've always said if Volume One is like True Detective, Volume Two is kind of like The Dark Knight, uh, with uh, Roach being sort of Heath Ledger's Joker by way of the Deer Hunter. And um, so that was kind of our Empire Strikes Back, uh, our Dark Knight. Uh, without spoiling too much, you know, Locke has found himself uh, in the crosshairs of internal affairs. And that's sort of the worst possible moment for what is really best described as a domestic terrorist uh, to start wreaking havoc around the city. And, um, you know, Spencer and Locke, you know, they, 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 they certainly they, they came out on top, but that doesn't mean they've come out in one piece. Uh, without you know spoiling too much, um, for characters like Spencer and Locke, uh, even winning is sometimes losing, and uh, their 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 victory certainly hasn't come without cost. So um, you know it's a very exciting book. Um, uh, uh, you know, IGN called it uh, stunningly subversive. That was their 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 term, and I I, I wear that like a badge of honor. <laughs> um, and and then for just while I'm doing synopses of my books, uh, you know my my new series going to the chapel, I've described it as as a uh, diehard meets wedding crashers. Uh, it's about a gang of bank robbers that thinks it would be easier to rob rich people's weddings than it would be to rob banks. They're going to find out just how wrong they are. It's like if uh, reservoir dogs had a baby with arrested development and then chose to bring that baby to a wedding. Uh, <laughs> it's, you know, that's it, such it, a great analogy. right? There. Yeah. It's, 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 it's super funny. Uh, it's super action packed. If you like books like crowded or uh, the fix, or uh, assassination, or uh, uh, or sex criminals, or if you're just a fan of like you know Fraction or uh, Kelly Thompson's runs on Hawkeye, Ooh, you're gonna yes. love this book. Um, I feel like I always felt like rom coms got a bad rap, and so I wanted to write a rom com that I thought everybody would like. And uh, this is this is it. Um, you know, if if you're a guy who feels like oh my masculinity is being threatened by a rom com, I promise you. You're gonna love uh, following the bad Elvis gang, and it, 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 you know. And if you're a woman who feels uh, uh, that a, a rom com makes you seem basic or, or or shallow, you're gonna love this. This is also the story of conflicted bride Emily Anderson, who is a, a wealthy heiress with a serious case of cold feet and a two hundred and fifty million dollar necklace on her neck. And so, uh, seeing how Emily and the bad Elvis gang, seeing how their their trajectories kind of uh, collide. That's so much of the fun of this book. Um, it's about it's a love story. At the end of the day, uh, it's about love, commitment, uh, and fear thereof. And what does it take to say till death do us part? 
but it's also about you know uh, grand larceny heists hostage situations mm-hmm. and and jailbreak situations so it's got a little something for everybody i think all right all right well then alec what do you got coming up next in terms of questions all right so um my next question um is that hero mm-hmm. um am i okay to say who yeah, hero please. is yeah okay so as as we all know, Hero is Locke's daughter, his long-lost daughter, in a sense. Um, so throughout the story, she has become one of the standout characters. So I wanted to ask, what drove you to take her in this direction that she went in in Volume 2, as well as where she ended up at the end without spoiling yeah. anything? Well, um, first off, thank you for saying that. Um, Hero is one of our favorite characters. I know uh, uh, Jorge lights up every time that we that we uh, have to draw her. And, um, you know, it, it was one of those things at first, I was thinking when we, when we started putting together the first volume, I thought, well, the murder mystery is not enough to sustain, sustain the whole series. It's sort of what's the midpoint twist here? What, what's the complication? And I thought... Um, having a, a child be at the center of all this, considering our series is about childhood trauma and abuse and mental illness, I thought that that was kind of a nice way to remind readers uh, of that um, by having sort of a child be, uh, you know, sort of the, the the thing that Locke has to save. It's sort of his way of trying to avenge the past, so to speak. Um, but Hero, she, you know, she wound up being a really fun character in, in part because she is Locke's daughter and Locke is already kind of a scrappy, uh, you know, somewhat unreliable narrator. Um, you know, he is dealing he is he is actively hallucinating his his best friend and partner, Spencer. So you always have to take what he does and what he says with a grain of salt. And um, so having uh, Locke's daughter be kind of a feisty character was was fun for me. But she wound up being kind of like the beating heart of the series, I think, in a lot of ways. And so uh, when we when when we knew we had enough interest to get a volume two, uh, we you know, I, I, I thought it would all it would be about consequences uh, because you don't get to mete out justice the way that Spencer and Locke do without a reaction. Um, society is a little too polite for uh, cops like them to be running around uh, sort of dispensing what's almost vigilante justice. So um, seeing how Hero would live in that world was kind of a fun, uh, was kind of a fun thing for me. I, I, I've got long-term plans for the character, um, and 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 uh, there that you know she's sort of our secret weapon in a lot of ways because she's the one human character that Locke can relate to. I mean, he's got Spencer, but Spencer's a victim of his imagination. Hero is sort of the the the, the person that makes Locke want to be better. And sort of he, she's the reason why Locke gets up in the morning. And um, seeing at the same time, every time I write something uh, new, it's always a response to what I wrote before. So, uh, for example, going to the chapel was kind of a response to the first Spencer and Locke, where I said, "All right, I, I want to write something that's a little less bleak. Um, I want to write something that's more, you know, outwardly funny. I wanted to write something with a bigger cast since we had kind of a tight, intimate cast for uh, the first volume of Spencer and Long. But um, the other thing I thought was, well, you know, I don't want Hero just to be a hostage um, like she was in volume one. And so I wanted to give her some more active roles and things to do. And um, without spoiling too much, uh, you know, Hero, uh, she kind of tries to take some matters into her own hands in, in, in volume two. And, um, I thought that was a really good 
sort of progression for what I consider her overall arc to be, which I, I'm not giving that away. But, um, you know, she needed to be more active. And I thought at the same time, what's a more innocent way for a young character to try to emulate her more unhinged father? Um, so, yeah, um, you know, the, 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 the adventures of Captain Amazing uh, was, 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 was a kind of a, a fun little sequence that we wrote together. Uh, it was certainly some of my favorite one-liners in the whole second volume, uh, especially when she talks about evil having a face. And if that means if evil has a face, it also has a butt. And that means you can kick that butt. Um, that, 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 that line just kind of had me cackling as I wrote it. Um, but, yeah, I, I like writing hero a lot and i think she reminds Locke of there's more to life than just his scars um and she really represents a lot of the stakes that uh that that his adventures have it's not just him anymore you know um he has a daughter that he has to look out for and i think that in a lot of ways she feels like she has a dad that she has to take care of and so watching that dynamic kind of unfold in a way, I think it gave Spencer and Locke uh, sort of an even deeper soul than what the first volume had. And I think, you know, uh, if if we get some more stories out of these characters, uh, which I cannot confirm or deny at this point, uh, their relationship will be just as front and center as, uh, as Spencer and Locke's. Absolutely. Yeah, like she was one of my favorite parts of volume two and i think my favorite part was um without spoiling the moment with uh, the phone yeah um that (laughs) that was both very clever and hilarious to me thank you no problem yeah i i uh, i will say uh, that the joe mulvey cover that he did for issue three for our uh, first spencer and Locke two that was our dark knight returns riff and that was something i've wanted to do a dark knight returns riff since since when we started the book, um, I, I had, I had, I had, I had pitched to Mulvey several times being like, Hey, let's do a dark Knight returns riff. And, and we were kind of like, ah, eh, we can't really justify it. Like not, not at this, at this juncture, you know, it would look weird to have like Locke just like on a, on a, on a wire, you know, by himself. And it'd be weirder to have Spencer with him doing it. And so when we figured out the perfect way to do it with hero, I was like, Mulvey, we're doing this. This is it. This is your moment. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's such a terrific piece of art. I actually, I, I, I'm seeing him at New York comic-con, uh, next month and I got to tell him, like, tell me how much I owe you for that cover. Cause I just want to buy the art from you directly. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, it was fantastic. Definitely. Um, so I also wanted to ask, yeah. um, this is just a general question, but sure. what were some of your favorite moments that you wrote in volume two and what inspired those moments oh man um that's a great question i um roach i loved writing roach um you know he was such a fun villain i i think um you know i i and and people who have followed me on facebook for a really long time uh uh, may know this i i'm not a huge fan of having your uh, having uh, uh, your first arc have like a mirror version of the hero is the villain it feels I feel like you haven't gotten to know the hero well enough to build up a mirror version, like to, to be a a legitimate enough threat. 
But um, since we had had a volume with Spencer and Locke together, and I think we'd kind of built them up as heroes, um, and in a lot of ways, they're kind of like wrecking balls. You know, they they part of their success rate is because they don't really care what happens to them. They just kind of barrel forward, and most people have something to lose, and they don't. Um, with volume two, I kind of wanted to see, well, what happens when the unstoppable force meets an immovable object? And so uh, I, I liked kind of it took a little while to crack Roach's philosophy, so to speak. Uh, but once I did, the whole rest of the story kind of clicked together. Um, you know, Roach, in a lot of ways, he's kind of like our Thanos uh, from, uh, you know, Infinity War, yeah. where the movie's really Thanos's movie. And I think volume two, while we, you know, it, we keep Spencer and Locke front and center, um, you know, Roach is, is really driving the narrative. And so seeing like fun, like he had a lot of really fun moments. I loved um, uh, Roach, it, Roach and, and Locke's first one-on-one, um, particularly when he, 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 he chains Locke to a railing with his own handcuffs and then rips uh, the Spencer doll's arm almost clean off. And, and Locke gets so upset that he rips the railing out of the wall while it's still chained to his wrist and tries to take a swing at him with it. Mm. And I was like, that is a, that was like, I, like when I wrote that, I was like, hell yeah, that's awesome. And then the fact that like Roach just catches the railing, like no big deal and throws Locke out of a window. I was like, yeah, that's a cool fight. Um, I'm, I'm into that. Um, some other fun moments, um, you know, hero, um, with her sort of vigilante excursion was really fun. Um, uh, Spencer and Locke shoving Dilbert's head in a toilet. That was really, I, <laughs> I think, uh, I think Scott, Al, uh, Scott, Scott Adams, who's the creator of Dilbert is kind of a D bag. And so I, um, and I had thought pretty much the moment we got greenlit from volume two, I was like, I'm going to do something terrible to Dilbert. Um, you know, just sort of like, I have to do something terrible with Dilbert, uh, cool. just cause like my sense of justice. Um, uh, Oh, uh, Roach, uh, murdering Dick Tracy with a helicopter. That was, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I had come up with that idea short. It was around the time, um, Archie had announced that they were going to do a Dick Tracy comic with uh, Michael Marecki uh, co-writing it. And uh, Michael is, is a friend of mine. I, I dig him a lot. You know, he sort of was one of the first pros to like take me seriously as a pro. And so when it turned out that like Archie had to cancel the book, cause it turned out IDW actually had the rights to it. I was like, well, screw that. Uh, you know, if, 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 if my buddy Michael can't have Dick Tracy, then nobody can. So um, <laughs> I, it was pretty early on. We had decided we were going to have Dick Tracy get murdered, uh, or I should say Dan Tiffany in case any lawyers are listening. Um, but, um, we weren't sure if Dan was going to be the first victim or if we were going to have him sort of be a victim of sort of a uh, greater escalation on Roach's part. And I think the way we wound up doing it was really fun. Um, Oh, I guess actually the other favorite moment I've got, and then I'll quit spoiling my own book is, uh, uh, I, you know, the, the hallucination issues that we've written in all in, in both volumes, um, I the, I think they're really important to the overall series. It's important both as sort of our love letter to Bill Watterson, but also to just establish that Locke is kind of you know one fingernail away from really just kind of losing his sanity in general. And I thought the message that we delivered of you know if you could go back and you could you could change it all, would you? 
and Locke saying, if we don't remember our scar, the reason our, the reason our scars hurt is because that's what reminders do. And if we forget our scars, then everything we survive loses its meaning. Um, I think that is probably the most important thing I've ever written. Um, and, and I think it's, it's, you know, it's, it speaks so much to the themes of Spencer and Locke, you know, which is, uh, I think everybody's had things in their past that have hurt them and that they don't like thinking about and have shaped them for, for better or for worse. And I think, you know, unfortunately, you know, it, it you can't go back, uh, you can't go home again. And so being able to sort of just take these, 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 these horrors in your life and try to make something a little more positive out of them. Uh, I think that's where the redemptive core of Spencer and Locke as a concept comes from. And so being able to sort of revisit that and have Locke actually revisit his childhood self and say, essentially, you know, we made it, you know, we did, we survived. Um, I think that's really important. I hope that gives readers a sense of hope when they're, when they're not feeling any hope uh, because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, um, if you if, if Locke can get through what he's getting through, you can get through what you're getting through. Absolutely. Like that, both hallucination issues from volume one and volume two were like some of the best Thank I've you. read in like just in general, like anything I've read. Absolutely. I, those were my favorite to write for sure. Um, and and, uh, uh, you know, I I would I would love to I would love to get to get another one uh, under my belt uh only time will tell it's it's gonna be a staple i'm i'm calling it now i feel like volume three needs to happen like very very yeah it it needs to i know i know you can't say but it we 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 got some plans we 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 have ideas um that actually brings me to my final question yeah um so what happens with Spencer and Locke at the end of um, at the end of Volume Two? Yeah, it's uh, without spoiling. It's it's um, it they they don't plant a rose garden. Not at it's, all. No, no, no. 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 It's, it's um, you know, it's it's a it's a gut punch of a finale. Yeah. and um, you know, it was uh. <laughs> It, it was it was it was written as sort of a, a calculated risk uh, because I still I still feel I still feel very confident this is not the last we've seen of them, um, but uh, yeah it was just um, I thought to myself you know what's the worst thing that can happen to these characters, and I felt like kind of the natural conclusion of this meta arc that we've been dealing with is you know Locke is kind of on you know he's hanging on by the fingernails and what happens when he slips. And so, so much of this series is about Locke's friendship with Spencer. And I thought, you know, that's the worst thing that can happen to him is what happens when that coping mechanism, not just, not just, it's, it's not even so much it fails, it works too well. Um, and it works in a way that makes things completely untenable for Locke moving forward. Um, yeah. And I, I thought, you know, that would be a cool that would be a cool dynamic to navigate is what happens when two best friends suddenly have a falling out. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, it was, I was, I, I was biting my tongue for, I kid you not, a little over two years. 
uh, not talking about that ending. Mm. That that ending has been in in the cards since before I approached Jorge Santiago Jr. Uh, wow. I, 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 I had ideas for three arcs in mind. Uh, and the thing is, is that I had to tell Action Lab and I had to tell Jorge, I was like, look, if nobody likes the first volume, then obviously we won't continue with it. But if the demand is there, we'll, we'll, we'll keep telling stories with it. So, um, yeah, there's, you know, all, all I'll say is, you know, just like with volume one, there was sort of, I think some, perhaps some unfinished business some some un, some unanswered plot threads. I, we've obviously left some here. Um, I, uh, I, you know, we did it sort of, uh, it was a calculated risk cause I figured if we are not, you know, given a, a third volume, people can riot in the streets over it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but, uh, no, I feel very confident. I, I, I don't think this is the last you've seen of these guys. Uh, but suffice to say, um, there are some big strips out there that conspicuously we're not in volume two. And I, I, that was for a reason. Uh, we're, we're, we've been saving the best for last. And if you think Roach Riley was uh, was dangerous, uh, you know, there are some other there are some there are some other strips that 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 I've had some thoughts on. Um, I, I to to be honest, I, I feel like I'd love to at minimum do three volumes of Spencer and Locke. It's it's a nice sort of you know it's a trilogy. People like trilogies. Yeah. But if people re- if the if the response was really there and people were super gung ho about this, um, there could be six volumes of this. Whoa. Um, there, there could be, there could be, well, let me rephrase. There could be five and a half volumes of this. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 the sixth volume, if we did one, it would be, a, it'd be a little bit of a unique beast compared to the rest of the, of what we've seen. But, um, I think the idea of sort of this gritty comic strip world, um, there's a lot that you can, there's a lot of stories you can tell there. There's a lot of archetypes you can explore. And the thing is, is, uh, you know, I love Spencer and Locke. I, I love, I love those characters and it's not just cause they're kind of my firstborn, but it's because I think they, they speak to a lot of people. And I think there, they, there, there's, there's something universal about these characters because everyone's had, has, everyone's had a past and everyone's had friends. Um, and I think, you know, if you, if, if you're a human being, you've had both of these things. And I think that's what speaks so much about Spencer and Locke, uh, as a concept. Absolutely. Well, I, I just want to say yeah. the, the final, the final page. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank Absolutely. you. It hurt my soul. Brilliant. Yeah. I, I, um, I felt really good about that last page. Um, yeah. we, we actually toyed with uh, uh, we tinkered a little bit. We we had we were deciding between and and eagle eyed fans might be able to notice this. I had asked Jorge our opening splash page for the last issue. I had said, hey, man, there is a chance we might do the credits on the last page. So can you draw both this splash page and the last splash page to just give me some wiggle room, depending on what decision we make? And um, very quickly we realized, oh, like we should save this for the end. Um, we should save, you know, we should have the title of the issue be a mission statement as it were. Um, you know, and if, if, if readers don't notice that we've been holding out on them, it's going to come as an absolute gut punch at the end. Um, I try to, you know, I, I, 
I'm I'm of the opinion that I, I want to use every tool in the toolbox uh, to try to elicit a response down, you know, to from from issue titles to the lettering to the mood of the color. Um, and so, you know, waste not, want not is my opinion. And if you can kind of subvert expectations in a way that will result in a, in a, in a greater emotional impact later on, uh, I will absolutely do that. I, I, I'm, I'm not really a formalist in that way. And I kind of consider rules to be broken. Their, rules are meant to be broken. And, uh, you know, so if there is a way to experiment with your storytelling, if there's if you can sort of back that up and see that as a calculated risk, um, I'm always in favor of, of, of taking a risk rather than, than than taking the safe path. Yeah, absolutely. That what it was a huge uh, risk at the end. But no, that that was just both volumes are just amazing. So just I, yeah. just you wait. Just Ooh. you wait. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, thank you for that sliver of hope <laughs> that I need in these trying times. Um, but I, I, I want to say one thing though. Yeah, um, I said I said earlier uh, that I reviewed Spencer and Locke. I also wanted to say Kai um, reviewed issue two of volume yeah. two uh, for me when I was going through some stuff. So I wanted to say thank you to Kai for doing that. Ooh, okay. Oh man, it was my pleasure. Honestly, um, everything that I said when I said um, this book deserves to be on every bestseller list, like it's a masterclass. Which was so nice of you. That was so nice. No, of you I, I, I mean it though. Like genuinely, from the bottom of my heart, Aww. that you need, like you deserve all the awards, especially that this is your first book out of the gate to be that powerful Seriously. and that masterful yeah. uh, in your storytelling is unheard of thank you you know um, I, so like it 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 means a lot <laughs> no I, and the thing is 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 i want to thank you guys for for reviewing it because I, and 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 you guys may know this about me but for 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 your listeners at home who may not um i got my start uh you know i i was a reviewer um i i guess uh, technically i got my start I, I was an intern at dc comics um uh, around when uh, batman r.i.p and Final Crisis and Green Lantern Secret Origin were My coming out. Time I, of year. <laughs> I, 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 I worked in all three of those. And, um, uh, uh, you know, and granted, it was just interning. Uh, but, you know, it was such an eye-opening experience, uh, you know, formatting scripts and finding reference art and seeing how the color, you know, impacts the art. And in the case of Final Crisis, what happens when the schedule goes off the rails? Um, and so the problem is it was during the recession. It was right when the recession started and there were no jobs, uh, certainly not in editorial. And um, thankfully, uh, I had met Janelle Azalin, who was a, a, a then an assistant editor in the Batman office. And she was an alumni of Dozerama. So that's kind of where I got my start. And I feel like writing reviews, somebody asked me this um, uh, the other day, and I would say, so writing reviews doesn't position you in a great place to sell your stuff because a lot of people will look at you and say, oh, well, you know, you're a reviewer. Like, you, you, you must not know how to write. But I think quite on the opposite, I think it was the best possible training I could have had to write um, because I was able to sort of look at my favorite writer's stuff and try to articulate, well, what do I like about this book? And conversely, and perhaps more importantly, looking at writers whose stuff I didn't connect with and try to say, okay, well, you know, based on the market, these, you know, are these people selling? So is, is there something that I'm missing? 
Um, and conversely, you know, if I'm not liking what I'm seeing, well, why is that? Is there something I can avoid? Can I learn from somebody else's mistake? Um, you know, for example, I think uh, decompressed storytelling is overdone. It's very overdone. And I think it's a challenge to write something that is very decompressed and still make it satisfying on a month to month issue to issue basis. And so that's something I didn't want to do. Um, I think going to the chapel number one is probably the most decompressed thing I've ever written. And we still introduced 15 characters and, 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 uh, a wedding robbery gone wrong in those 22 pages. But, um, yeah, so that's why I think, you know, reviewers, I think reviewing is such a thankless job. Um, and I think it's really, but I think it's, it's, it's crucial to the industry. And I think it's crucial for, for the next generation of, of comics creators. I think it is so easy to get a very myopic view of the industry and of art and of writing and of what the, the types of stories you want to tell. And I think reviewers, you know, any, any reviewer worth their salt, who's done it long enough. And I'm not talking about the snarky reviewers because it, look, it's, it's, it, it's easier to substitute snark when you don't have any substance, but I think the reviewers who are really thoughtful and earnest and, and, and self-aware, um, those are all qualities you need to be a comics writer, I think. And so, um, you know, that's why I, 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 you know, I always thank everybody at Newsarama because um, this book, it wouldn't exist without them, first and foremost. It would not exist without the friends that I've made in the, in the reviewer trenches. And it certainly wouldn't exist in, in, in as polished a form as, as, as it does because I still, to this day, you know, my, my, my friends in, in the reviewer sphere at Newsarama, I will still be like, hey, guys, do you think this is a dumb idea? And I can trust that if they say yes or no, I can kind of reconcile that with my own internal compass and say, all right, like, sounds like they're right. Or maybe that'll tip me over the, tip me over the net. Or every once in a while I'll say, no, this still doesn't ring true to my, to my compass. I got to rework this. Um, So yeah, reviews, uh, you know, I, I, I I can't get enough of them. I think reviews are one of the most important things in the industry. And uh, so thank you. If you guys haven't been thanked today, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Seriously. All right. Well, from there, Kai, you have some very intriguing questions for for this gentleman. How would you you pick it up from there? Well, I was going to say, why don't you do yours first? Because yours are about going to the chapel and mine are just kind of, you know, conversation starters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fair. That's fair. Okay, so in terms of this book, I do want to say, like, you, you did say yeah. you did, this is the most decompressed thing that you, you've ever written, and th- I, I do want to commend you about, out the gate that for a first issue, you do do a lot of things in <laughs> one issue, and you make it work. You don't just, like, throw everything, like, in the gumbo pot and just shove it out the door. You do put the work in and make this issue Thank matter. You. So I do want to commend yeah. you for that. Thank you very much. Uh, you know, it was, I feel like first issues, uh, you know, and th- this is sort of based on, uh, you know, I studied, I, I studied journalism and screenwriting and, and theater in college. And something one of my screenwriting professors always said was, you know, you really want to have, think of your story as like a seed. And the first 10 minutes are that seed. And everything that comes out of the, that story has to grow from that specific seed. So I try, my, my philosophy is just about everything that you need to know about the whole rest of the series, I feel like you should, you should know that by the end of the first issue. Um, and you know, 
some some series I think uh, you know are a little easier to do that than others. I think the more complicated the world building is, the harder it is to do that in one issue. Um, but yeah, I think it's uh, you know I think for going to the chapel, I wanted to make sure because this is a kind of a down to earth story. I mean, you know, there's no real, you know, there's no, it's not in space. We're not even dealing with somebody with like crazy hallucinations like Spencer and Locke. Mm-hmm. I was like, Oh, well you got to fall in love with these characters. Um, and so I felt like, okay, let's keep playing around with these characters and just find as many excuses as possible to keep throwing them up against each other. Uh, Cause I feel like one of the most effective ways of showing character is showing how people interact with one another and seeing what their relationships are with one another. Um, I think readers are able to unconsciously fill in a lot of the blanks just based on that uh, because, you know, it's, it, it all stems from how these characters are going to play off each other. All right, cool. And, and like, and I, I do, I, like you touched on this a little bit in terms of like the, yeah. the, the different uh, contrast and comparison between this and, and Spencer and Locke, but like in yeah. terms of this being a four issue miniseries, what's, what's that like trying to go long form with Spencer and Locke, but then compressing this down into such a smaller like narrative with going into the, going to the chapel? Well, so, so, so it's interesting you say that because, because the, that question, um, you you're you're thinking that I actually had a plan for Spencer and Locke. Oh. Uh, the, the, the thing is, the thing, I you're a lot more hopeful than I am. Um, okay. I, I I write my stories. It's more. I I always tend to write thinking, what's just the first arc? What's the what's a standalone story that you can tell in one arc? Because my my thought is, I never know if I'm going to get a second arc. I don't. I never know if I'm going to get a sequel. Um, for Spencer and Locke, for example. Uh, I, I had some ideas in my back pocket if people liked it, but I thought, I don't know if people are going to like this book. Um, you know, we, we really were turning one of comics, most sacred cows into some very sacred hamburger. Mm. And, um, I thought like, well, this book could either really succeed or really fail. And it's going to be loud no matter what. And to be honest, that's part of the reason why, you know, I, I took basically, the, you know, I, I had a year where it was just I had projects in development, but nothing was coming out. And that was in part because I was kind of waiting to see what people were going to say about Spencer and Locke, because I thought, like, there's every chance that I might not ever get another book again. People might hate this book so much that I'd be persona non grata in the rest of the industry. And I better be ready for that. So um, the way I tend to write scripts is uh, and this comes from I used to be a, a crime reporter. That's the job I wound up doing after leaving D.C. Oh, wow. uh, I, I covered crime and politics at the Berkshire Eagle at Pittsfield, Massachusetts. So uh, big ups to my Berkshire County people. Um, uh, any Berkshire County listeners, uh, pick up your copy of the Eagle. They, 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 they need all the sales they can get. Um, but uh, I tend to write, it, it, as far as journalism goes, you think, okay, what's the story that can fit on the page? But then they're going to need more stuff for the website. So that's a longer story. And so you think, what's like the bare minimum? What's the thing? What's the story I have to tell? That if I don't tell this story, I'm just going to like curl up into a ball and die like one of those bees that have lost their stingers. <laughs> and then, you know, if that goes well, then I have I always have a couple ideas in my back pocket of, all right, people really like this story. What would a sequel and a threequel look like? Um I've got a sequel and a threequel idea for going to the chapel. Uh, uh, you know, it's if if the father of the bride can pull off a part two, I can do it. Uh, I I uh, okay, that's fair. <laughs> you know, I, I 
I because going to the chapel, even though we've got sort of the wedding day trappings, so much of it is just about grappling with fear of these big milestone life changing moments. And so that there are there are other moments that can certainly be explored, uh, both with, uh, you know, uh, Emily and, and, and the bad Elvis gang. Uh, so for me, it's always about, OK, what what is something that I'm burning to tell for this particular arc? So usually for me, I'm always trying to write my storylines. What's the fastest way I can get this th- this across? Um, what's the least amount of pages I need to do this? And this is um, it's pragmatic. Um, my my thought is when I wrote Spencer and Locke, um, I actually looked up. Uh, I, I really wanted to pitch to Boom Studios because I knew a lot of people at Boom, and I looked at their entire catalog and I said, okay, how many series do they have that are four issues? Versus how many issues? How many series do they have that are five issues? Versus how many do they have that are six issues? And it was something like ninety-two percent of all of Boom series creator-owned series at that time were four issues, and then it was like it was like some small percentage were five issues, and then I think they had like three series that were six issues. So um, it's it's a little bit pragmatic. Also for me, um, the the tighter that I can make the storyline. A, it's just lighter on my wallet as much as it is yours. You know, I self-finance my books. Um, and uh, secondly, you know, it's less of a risk for publishers and for retailers um, because, you know, attrition is a thing. It's gravity. You can't – you cannot help it. Um, and uh, and lastly, just as a writer, it you know, it keeps the churn moving. Um, it means that I'm not repeating myself, for example. Um, I, I'm working on uh, Grand Theft Astro right now, my, my sci-fi book over at Top Cow, which we announced uh, last Comic-Con. And a challenge that I've had, because it's a longer series, is I've found myself, there are certain uh, lines that I've found myself repeating that I have to be like, oh, nope, can't say that. Or, you know, you got to reintroduce readers into the story with every issue you know there's a little bit of exposition that you got to get out there and it's like ugh, it's tough writing those scenes it's actually that is the toughest i think thing for me to write as a writer and i get why especially during you know when i was working on spencer and Locke, where there were so many writers who were just like i don't care like i'm just gonna just dive into the story and i hope you've been reading because i'm not explaining it for you (laughs) it's not it's not a sustainable way to write i don't think it's necessarily a great or accessible way to write but i understand the temptation because it is hard to recap your story in an organic way, um, issue to issue. It is, it is, it is so tough. It is, uh, it is by far the hardest writing that I've had on 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 this series, Grand Theft Astro. And um, so, yeah, I try to keep it tight, as tight as as, as possible, um, for my sanity as well as yours. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I think for for going to the chapel, you know, I think the only well, no, I don't think I, I, don't, I think I approached both of them pretty similarly. It was just saying, OK, for this first issue, especially what like I've only got one chance to make a good impression on people. So I better do as, as strong of a wind up as, as I can and try to make people fall in love with the book, the characters and the concept at the jump. How can I front load this so that people will be so invested that they'll keep reading all the way to issue four? I gotta say, I'm definitely hooked from like from the jump, like just by the, by the way of the intro, how you went with like that silent music, like, like that people, that people with the picture in their head. 
that yeah. was really pat like good for me because like being a Bioshock fan, I love classical music in that regard. Mm-hmm. So having mm-hmm. that kind of like intro really helped. But then my heart really breaks for the groove, Jesse. Like yeah. he has to be a part of all of this mess, and it just yeah. Uh, my, so my heart's already in this book. <laughs> Poor, poor Jesse. Uh, you know, it's something I wanted about going to the chapel. And I think so. I think rom-coms get a bad rap in general, not just in the direct market, but I think pop culture as a whole. And I think part of that is because there's this misconception that rom-coms are easy, that they're predictable, that you kind of know which way the chips are going to fall. And um, I'm not – that's not me. I, I, I kind of – I, I – I want there to be different viable options. I'm, I'm a big fan of Bridget Jones's Diary. That's one of my favorite rom-coms because it's a love triangle and you have to kind of decide which way is, are, are things going to go. And so um, I, I, think, I think oftentimes when you've got a love triangle in a rom-com, it's like a girl with her obviously crappy boyfriend. And, you know, there's some other guy that she's met who's like this charming scoundrel. And, you know, that she's going to leave this like D-bag of, of, of a boyfriend to go for the guy she's meant to be with. I didn't want to make it that easy for this book. And so Jesse, uh, Emily's fiance, he's a decent guy. He's mm. he's just he's just a little overexcited. Uh, you know, he's so enthusiastic and he's so sure, which is, you know, uh, that he's not seeing these flashing neon signs of anxiety coming from his fiance. Um, And so that was the thing. I I, I think that was probably, you know, you're talking about the differences between Spencer and Locke and going to the chapel. I'd say the biggest difference in going to the chapel was I wanted to write a book that didn't really have villains um, or didn't have like out and out villains. Um, Everybody in this book is going to make sense. Um, in some capacity. And so it's really kind of like a, you know, choose your team or, you, you know, are you, are you a team, team Jesse or you team Tom? Um, are you team Emily or you team, you know, and, and I guess Walt, the sheriff is the closest thing we have to a bad guy in this book. But even then, you know, he's not a bad person. Like if you spotted a chapel that was being held hostage by bank robbers, you would definitely pull out all the stops to rescue people. So, uh, it kind of made me think of like the old time, stage plays like you know the, the, those farces where so much of the plot is generated by miscommunications mm, and yes. people like you know people just missing each other or people only hearing half of a conversation and, and taking it the wrong way um that was kind of something that we really leaned into with this book is so much of it is about communication and lack thereof um or you know misconnections and mis- miscommunications and um and I think as a result, uh, everybody in this book's kind of lovable. And that was a really kind of fun, liberating experience for me. Um, you know, because Spencer and Locke, you know who's the good guy and you know who's the bad guy. And you know you're rooting for Locke to win. And even when you've got a villain like Roach who's kind of like fun to watch him be bad, you know that like that's that that there's an expiration date on that. Like that we you know we're not going to follow Roach in, 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 into hell the same way that, that we'd follow Locke. Yeah. And uh, going to the chapel, it's kind of you know it, it, the goal is you know just make all these characters kind of fun. And so you know you know I I, I want I want fans to be just as excited if we did like a Grandma Harriet spinoff as much as if we did a Bad Elvis Gang <laughs> spinoff. Um, you know if it, you know just trying to find something fun about all these characters and i think because we had so many characters in this book it sort of it put the impetus on me and and, and our artist gavin Guidry um 
to make every character kind of justify themselves. Every character's got to earn themselves, um, you know, in, 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 both in terms of where they fit in the plot and their overarching personalities. And so um, I think it's a testament to Gavin and his strengths as, as a very expressive artist that he's able to sort of take my one-liners and really just elevate them um, because you see one look on these characters' faces and you're like, oh, okay, like – Grandma Harriet is the last person you should be listening to for advice, yeah. but she is more than willing to give it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, yeah, it was, that was kind of, that was part of the appeal of, of writing this book for me. I, I, I like that you said that you cared about a lot about these characters because like a group that I am interested in learning more about is the Elvis game. Like is yeah. the, is the focus going to be more on Tom, the leader, or is there going to yes. be development more for everybody else too? So, so, so Tom of course will be kind of front and center. Cause I, I consider him, you know, he's kind of a, of a co-lead in this book. Uh, you know, this book is it's, it's all about Emily's journey and sort of her, her grapple, her grappling with cold feet. But her dynamic uh, with Tom is going to be kind of the, the engine that, that propels our story, because uh, I, I think there's a lot of comedy to be mined of uh, seeing the lines being blurred between the hostage and the hostage taker. Um you know, one of my favorite movies, for example, is Dog Day Afternoon, and there was a lot of comedy that they mined off of, off of a similar premise. But uh, the the fun thing about this is we still get to like see some of the, the see the rest of the bad Elvis King's personalities just based on the way that they bounce off Tom and they interact with the with the with the uh, the wedding party. Um, you know, I, I actually wrote some pretty detailed backstories for all of these characters when I was uh, discussing them with Gavin. Um, I, I write pretty detailed character descriptions just at the jump thinking, what are they wearing? What's their personality like? How do they interact with one another? Um, for example, I had written something um, and, and it, so oftentimes it doesn't even make it to the final page, but it helps kind of inform how you write this series. So, for example, I had said uh, in my in my initial character descriptions that uh, uh, Motown, uh, Motown's older brother had used to work with the Bad Elvis Gang and he went to jail. And so uh, Bowtown was like, well, you guys were my brother's friends and this is how, you know, my brother made money. So let me in. And the problem is he's a real sweetheart and kind of a doofus. And so the, the rest of the Elvises are kind of like, well, we kind of owe it to his brother, but we really need to keep an eye out on him. We really can't trust him to be doing anything like too, too sensitive because he will mess this thing up. And um, that was kind of fun because we do get to kind of explore little bits and pieces of that uh, that does pop up in the text. Uh, so yeah, it's, but I think, I think so much of this, because we have a limited page space, we get to learn a lot about character by seeing characters interact with one another. Um, I can say, for example, I know we, we, we've, uh, we've, uh, teased out the preview, I believe for, uh, for, for issue three, and we'll certainly be sending that out, uh, uh, you know, this week, but, um, we get to see Romero who, you know, he's our zombie Elvis, you know, he's kind of, he starts off kind of the fierce one. He's the Raphael of the team, as I always say. Um, Mm -hmm. and then we see that he's like hitting it off with like the flower girl. Uh, because the flower girl's a pyromaniac and she wants to learn how to hold a shotgun. Uh, and she's like, this is the best day of my life. And Romero's like, yeah, I know, right? Kids aren't, kids, who says kids aren't fun? Uh, so seeing how these characters kind of uh, uh, grow and 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 uh, loosen up a little bit uh, in the face of this like life or death peril with the police outside, um, that's super fun for me. And uh, I think there's... There's a lot of directions you can go with the Bad Elvis Gang. Um, they are a super fun group, and um, I'd love to tell some more stories with them. Uh, uh, you know, f- f- fingers crossed. Maybe one day that'll happen. 
All right, all right. And then the one, the one thing that I, re- I really want to talk about is that from by how issue one is, I don't want to like, spoil too much, but yeah. this idea, this idea that Emily is going to grapple not only with the choice of her life, but mm-hmm. even being either the hostage or maybe even becoming the sort of Bonnie to Tom's Clyde in a way mm-hmm. that could possibly open up. Mm-hmm. Why, what made you go in this direction? And, and is there any hints that you can give us in the future of the series? Yeah. Well, first off, yeah. I mean, you're 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 your instincts are right. I mean, you know, we're going to see, we're going to see, you know, Emily, because, because Emily is sort of in this weird position where she's kind of the intermediary between the bad Elvis gang and the rest of her family, but she's also got some ulterior motives. You know, she's, she's stalling for time. She wants to figure out like, what exactly do I want in my life? So yeah, she might become the ringleader of her own hostage situation, uh, which is kind of a fun, uh, a fun, you know, dynamic. Um, I always think characters with secrets are kind of fun, especially when they're trying desperately to hold on to those secrets. Uh, Emily's is she's having cold feet and she doesn't know if she wants to go through with this. So, um, yeah, we, she's going to have some big choices she's going to have to make because at the end of the day, um, she can run, but she can't hide uh, from from her commitments. And so she's eventually she's going to have to make a stand. Um, so much of this book is sort of her unhealthy coping mechanism with trying to sort of put off the inevitable. And um, she's going to go to some kind of drastic lengths and she's going to make some very strange bedfellows doing it. Um, but, yeah, she uh, yeah, Emily's Emily's sort of uh, ambivalence, I guess, Um that's a driving force of the book. That is really the heart and soul of this book is she wants to make sure she's making the right decision. And unfortunately she's got a lot of external pressures on her right now. You know, she's got the bad Elvis gang. Um, she's got, you know, her, her fiance and then she's got the cops waiting outside. And so um, playing both sides of the law is not as easy as it looks. And that's going to be, I, I think really the heart and soul of this book um, watching Watching Emily at times be a, a rather effective criminal and other times, uh, you know, she's not really necessarily cut out for this. And um, so, yeah, she's going to she's going to have some big decisions to make. And the problem is, is she's not operating in a vacuum either. Um, you know, we've see her family is super dysfunctional. Uh, we see that Jesse is a very well-meaning fiance who just wants to, you know, he doesn't know he's, he's the guy who doesn't know what's going on. And so he, you know, he's taking everything at face value and he's saying, okay, my, my bride has just been taken by these bank robbers. I got to go save her. Um, and so there's a lot of moving parts that are going to kind of come together in a way that I, I, I think is really satisfying. Um, but yeah, I mean, Emily's got, she's got some big decisions to make and, um, and those agonizing choices are going to be what punctuate this series. Okay. All right. And then Kai, you did say you had some more conversation start type questions. So yeah, we get into that before we go ahead and wrap up. All right. Um, so the questions I've got for you don't necessarily um, like focus on specifically your writing, but more sure. everything else going on around us in the comics yeah. world and um, more towards your process, I guess. Sure, sure. Um, that sounds great. So, and they, they kind of expand on some of the things that you've already talked about. So I hope they're not too repetitive. No, 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 not at all. Not at all. Let's cool. do this. Cool. So your characters tend to have like a very black and white moral compass, um, mm-hmm. especially in Spencer and Locke with uh, going to the chapel. It's a little more. Sure. Ambiguous. Um, yeah. 
but the gray areas are there to uh, they serve to further your character's decisions, which are then justified in their actions. So the current trend in big two comics seems to be more focused on villain centric stories mm-hmm. and breaking heroes or having them turn to, you know, the dark side, so right. to speak. So when you write your heroes as morally defined as they are, like, why do you write them the way that they are? And do you think there's a need for redemption arcs? Mm-hmm. And then why do you think there's such a push for these villain centric bad spotlight stories? Well, um, it's a great question. I think part of the reason why there is this trend right now. Um, I have an advantage that the big two doesn't, which is I don't have 60 years of history that I have to keep building on or 80 years to keep building on. Um, You know, so much of the trends that we see in the big two, I think, are, you know, they got to keep reinventing the wheel. Um, And 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 so, you know, reinventing of the wheel drives up sales. And then, you know, you eventually go back to the status quo. But, you know, it's it's uh, people have to keep sort of changing things up uh so i think for 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 my books it's just you know this is something brand new so we i don't have to deconstruct it um it's very much it's very liberating to just be like here's the book here's the concept like i can i can do little bits of deconstruction here and there with further installments but you know the the characters are the characters and i think it's it's i think it's a big pitfall in indie comics these days um especially so many of them who want to do superhero stories. And I think it's already a tough sell to do superhero stories that are not Marvel and DC. I mean, Valiant has, 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 has sort of carved their own niche, but my philosophy is in a world where Pepsi and Coke exist, you know, do you need an RC Cola? Um, so I, I see mm-hmm. so many indie people who they think, Oh, well, I'm just going to do an immediate deconstruction of a superhero trope. And, and, people will 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 love that book because they love superheroes and they find that 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 doesn't that's not the case you need something a little deeper i mean watchmen works because there's it's deconstruction but it's very smart deconstruction and there's a there's an overall theme which is in the real world if people put on suits and were vigilantes they would be super ineffectual broken people who would either have no impact on the status quo or their impact would be so monumental that it would just knock the world off its axis um, so, uh, I, I think right now villain centric thing, you know, it, it's, some of it's just the trend. That's where it's going. Some of it is, you know, villains are inherently, you know, they're, 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 they're more fun. Um, you know, and, and unless you've got sort of like a chaotic good character, like, like Locke, um, you know, heroes, especially the big two superheroes, they're inherently reactive, you know, they're on patrol and then they see something happen and they respond to it villains drive the story um and and you're able to sort of change the flavor and tone of your story not based on the hero because the hero is the constant it's the villain that you're changing up Mm -hmm. it's sort of you know uh you know think of the superheroes as the bread and it's the villains that are whatever you're putting in that sandwich um so i think uh, to 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 go through your questions I, i i think you know there's a push for bad guys getting a spotlight because I think they're easier to redefine. Um, there are not a lot of corporate mandates saying, well, you got to keep the heroes in X, Y, Z position or, you know, also fans are going to freak out a whole lot less if, you know, you change, you know, Captain Cold versus, you know, seeing the Comicscape man babies fighting against, you know, uh, Jane Foster's Thor. Oh, yeah. um, you know, mm. I, I, I uh, you know, the shot uh, fired like a gun. Bang! Yeah. 
no, no. I mean, I mean, it's just it's it's one of those things that that that, and I I, I won't waste too much more time, you know, about Comicscape. But my thought is, you know, um, I, I I I I'm I'm a huge believer in trying to make the comics industry the best it can be. I think being a troll about it is not the way to do it, uh, and I think harassing creators is not the way to do it. My my thought is, you know, just put your money where your mouth is and make a decent story. And I think, you know, uh, uh, being upset about having diverse characters and diverse creators, um, you know, and diverse genres and diverse stories, my thought is I, I want to see the comics industry go the distance. I, 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 I'd say I guess that's the one thing we have in common is, you know, I want to see, you know, I, I, I would hope that they feel the same way, that we want to see comics kind of keep growing. And I think the way to do that, and that's part of the reason why I wrote Going to the Chapel, is – the only way to make comics last to the next generation um, is if we keep bringing new readers to the table. And that means telling stories that, you know, I love superhero stories. I love superhero stories. I grew up reading superhero stories. We need stories other than superhero stories uh, because there are people out there who, if they haven't gotten into superheroes now, they're not going to get into them. But maybe they like romantic comedies or maybe they like crime or maybe they like psychological thrillers. And, I've had plenty of people tell me, um, uh, you know, Spencer and Locke was my first comic and I loved it. And that's the goal here. I'm not out to preach to the converted. I'm out for converts. And um, so so that's why I, 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 I feel like, um, you know, comics gate in, in general is, 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 I think, a little misguided. Um, I think they are operating, you know, for, for a movement that talks about, oh, operate using logic and don't get so emotional. They certainly seem like an emotional bunch of man babies. And so, um, you know, my thought is, is think it through, guys. Like, harassing somebody off Twitter is not the way to get your comics, like, uh, get the comics industry, make it a, a healthy and welcoming place for new readers. Um, you know, the way to get comics to be a healthy and welcoming place for new readers is to be healthy and welcoming. Um, so anyway, <laughs> I digress. My I can't speak for everybody else, but I think you just solidified yourself as like my favorite comic. Well, thank you. Right now. <laughs> I, I, so, so I, I guess, I guess, you know, I think some of it though, you know, part of <laughs> also why people are talking about bad guys a lot is because, you know, this is an era where bad guys are, are having a resurgence. Um, you know, I think it's something that's on everybody's mind. And so yeah. it's it's sort of I think it's, you know, whether consciously or not, I think it's something that people are trying to work through um, creators. You know, so much of what we write is therapeutic. Um, certainly, mm -hmm. you know, I, I would consider it as such. So I'm sure that's that's part of the zeitgeist. Um, so do I think there's a need for redemption arcs? I think it depends on the character. Um you know, because some of my favorite characters, I mean, you know, Quicksilver, Scarlet Witch, Hawkeye, Black Widow. I mean, most of your favorite Avengers that they've had redemption arcs and now they're they're seen as heroes. I think that's exactly. that's kind of one of my one of my favorite parts about the Avengers that nobody really talks about is, you know, that's a showcase for, uh, you know, villains and misunderstood uh, people to become good. Um, you look at Magneto, you know, where he suddenly, you know, he often sort of straddles that line these days between hero and villain. Um, and you know, but he's got a reason for it. Um, and to be honest, I think it's a reason that, you know, becomes more and more seductive by, by the, by the hour. 
Um, you know, you see, you know, neo-Nazis in the streets of Charlottesville and you suddenly think hmm, maybe some maybe Magneto was right. Um, so I, I, I think redemption arcs, you know, are definitely important. I think that's something I always try to do with my characters. Um, you know, I think Spencer and Locke, that that's that's the whole arc. It's it's one of redemption. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's sort of one of saying, OK, you've come from this situation. You've had to do this stuff to survive. Can you still be can you still consider yourself a good person? And when I say that, I think is Locke's fatal flaws. He he never considers himself a good person, which is is so heartbreaking. Uh, I think as, as as a writer and as a reader, is you you just want to hold him and you just want to give him a hug and be like, buddy, this wasn't your fault. Like you didn't do anything wrong here. Like you just you got unlucky, and you 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 were born in the wrong place in the wrong time to the wrong people, and that's the only thing that's the only thing that happened to you. Um, so seeing him sort of you know, two steps forward, one, one to three steps back in terms of his redemption arc. Um, but I think, I guess, I guess, you know, I think they are important because I think a lot of people want to see characters grow and change. And, uh, you know, if you have, if you got a good redemption arc for a villain, then you get all that street cred they've done for being a villain, but then you get to see it on the side of the angels. It's very fun. Um, I guess the, the you're saying, you know, why do I write my characters as morally defined as they are? And, it, you know, it's interesting because I I, um, I don't know if I necessarily consider them that way. I, 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 I think Locke is sort of the epitome of a loose cannon for to me. And, and um, I try to write him a little. He's not he's not Rorschach. And the fact that Rorschach is a guy who like any any discerning reader would be like, oh, that's not a guy I want to emulate. But like he's definitely he's a guy who's got some serious baggage and um, he's certainly a little broken inside. And, you know, he's trying to navigate life with that brokenness to him. Um, And sometimes that means that he, you know, you know, beats a dude, you know, with a toilet seat and uh, with no warrant and then shoves his head into a toilet. Like, (laughs) it's not really like he's not really like the most sterling cop out there. Um, But uh, but, you know, and and same thing with Emily and the fact that, like, you know, she's going to wind up like teaming up with a gang of bank robbers rather than telling her fiance she's nervous. Um, So I like to write characters who. I think I think what I try to do, and maybe this is what you're seeing, is I, I, I always want them to mean well. Um, I feel like unless it's the case of Roach where you've really earned it, um, I have a tough time. You know, I, the villains are the least interesting part of the story for me. I think if you've done your job right, um, you know, it's it's if, if it's their name on the cover, you want to make them the most interesting people in the book. Um, and oftentimes you know, good characterization, like we were talking about earlier, good characterization is about seeing how characters bounce off one another. And if you can get that chemistry together, then sort of the whole piece starts to flow. And so, um, yeah, I feel like, you know, you've got some, you've got some flawed, but well-meaning characters and you sort of bounce them off just the right person and some, some, some fun sparks start to fly. Mm -hmm. Um, so my background before I started working for On Comics Ground, I'm a published author. Um, I'm okay. an independently published author. I have a dozen books out there. Um, so which is why, thank you, um, which is why I'm really more focused on the craft side of things with my yeah. questions and with what I see where you're going with your characters. It's like, mm, yeah, this guy is definitely very, this is his moral compass. He's very, you know, chaotic, good. Yeah. For example, like I see with Spencer and Locke, I see them more as like chaotic good where they will do anything. Yep short of you know break like they have their line in the sand 
yeah. where they go, it's like, I will kill a guy if I am justified in killing a guy, but I won't kill a guy in cold blood. Yeah. And, and, it's kind and of where you I know, see for, moral. I think that's, that's, that's a great way to look at it. I mean, I, and in particular, um, I do think a lot about like, what's their line? Like, what's the line in the sand that they will not cross? Um, for Locke, Locke is the kind of guy who um, he'll see red if anything happens to a child, which, to be honest, I'm I'm very similar. Um, mm-hmm. For somebody who wrote a book about child abuse, I cannot handle um, the way that they handle wh- the, the way that pop culture usually deals with child abuse on, on mm-hmm. screen. Um, I saw the movie Lion for example, and I nearly walked out of the theater. I was so upset um, during most of that movie uh, because you see these flashbacks of this poor kid in, in like an Indian train station and people are like shoving him to the ground. And like he, this poor kid is like sobbing that he doesn't know where his parents are. And like, like, like he, he at one point gets hit by a bike messenger and I like almost stood up and got out of the theater. I was so upset. Um, so I think I'm, I'm a lot like Locke in, in, in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I think, I think, yeah, that's a, that's an excellent point in terms of, you know, what's their line in the sand? What's their what's their breaking point that they're they're not gonna th- th- either they won't continue or they you know they know that this is the thing that I'll lay my life down on the line to make sure it doesn't happen. Um, yeah, those I, t- I I try to think about a lot um, because I think characters with conviction mean something. Um, you know, I, I I try to think about points of view and conviction. Um, it's not to say, I mean, even Emily, who doesn't know what she wants in her life, she's got conviction that she's like, I need out. I need out of this particular situation, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to get out of this situation here. Um, that, like, you know, I think having, you know, clear goals is certainly helpful in terms of just structuring the story. And um, and so, yeah, I think I think that for sure. I, I think I think. Having 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 convictions, I think, helps build the characters. All right. So that like that. So that's cool. And it ties into kind of my next question um, where I was going with that was, does your approach mm-hmm. uh, change to writing uh, your approach to writing change much depending on this story, depending on those? Sure. Goals? And then is there a ritual or any kind of preparation you do before you set up to write? Um, yeah. Your time, you're like, I need to have tea and my thesaurus. <laughs> so it is, it is, it, it's, boy, it's, it's a, it's a great question because no two pitches I've ever put together have come in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it, I think that like 90, 90% of my work is like pre-prep and then like 10% is like hunkering it down and just like vomiting it out. Mm-hmm. Um, this this kind of comes from my journalism background and, and just the way that I would write papers in college is that I would sort of, I would build up like a big head of steam just figuring out, okay, here's what I'm going to write and then just marathon it. Um, and so unfortunately it means I'm a little bit of a slower writer than, than, than most, uh, because I spend, I spend a decent amount of time just thinking through the variables. I've got untold number of, of Google doc pages where they're like half written outlines where like, I'm kind of like, okay, if this outline's not flowing, do a new page and just rewrite and see how you can fix this. Um, I, the way that the ideas tend to form, it's, you know, sometimes it's concept, sometimes it's thematic, sometimes it's I. There's a type of story that I want to tell. Grand Theft Astro, for example, I thought to myself, I really want to do a sci-fi book. 
what's what's a sci-fi book? And I remember distinctly, I said on my list of things I wanted to do, I wanted to do a, a sci-fi book, but I wanted to do a sports book. Um, I remember I talked to somebody, um, uh, I believe it's Skybound, and we talked about sports books and how nobody does sports books. And I thought, oh, what's a sci-fi sport that could be kind of fun? And it wound up turning into interstellar drag racers. Um, and so uh, now I'm at the stage where it's like, oh, I see a really cool storytelling trick. And I think, okay, what could I do for a storytelling trick uh, to hinge a story on that to make it work? Um, you know, I, 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 for example, I desperately want to do a, a Groundhog Day type story desperately um i I, you know and seeing you know uh edge of tomorrow and uh and happy death day um i'm kind of like okay like there are ways you can do riffs on this that are kind of cool so i've got i've got a couple of groundhog day type stories that i'm still weighing whether or not i want to do so um how does the approach though change when depending on the story um a lot of it depends on how many characters i've got in the mix um you know for chapel because we had so many characters in the mix it took a while just to flesh them all out and then you're like okay we've got all these characters how do i put them together in scenes that i can show them off in as efficient a way as possible i i wind up flexing a lot of my math skills uh when i write um because it's like okay you've got 20 or 22 pages or you've got four five or six issues um how can you fit everything that you want to tell in this in these constraints per page? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, Spencer and Locke, I was able, I, I'm able to 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 not wing it, but I'm able to um, riff a little bit more. Um, I usually sort of I, I usually tend to write my first issue scripts just just to write a first issue script, just to see like is this thing viable? Because uh, if I can't write a first issue script, this project's dead in the water, and I need to rethink it. Um, then I'll write the treatment, you know, sort of the book report version of the rest of the series. And that kind of that's always the toughest part for me. Um, plotting is not my strongest suit, um, you know, because I tend to second guess and I'm kind of like, oh, well, like, you know, I want to get the character here. How do I get them here? So going to the chapel took me months to get the treatment out uh, because there are so many moving parts and it's sort of figuring out, OK, these are things I things I know I want to hit. How do I hit them? Uh, whereas Spencer and Locke, for example, Spencer and Locke one, I had a pretty tight outline. Spencer and Locke two took me twice as long to write because I did not have a tight outline and it was a little bit more improvisational. Um, I had ideas of sort of each issue and what I wanted to say, but like the character moments, you know, um, I didn't, uh, you know, heroes sort of sequence in issue three, that was like an 11th hour thing that I thought of as I was finishing issue two. Um, so, um, I tend to I prefer to plan my stuff out. It makes my life a million times less stressful when I'm actually sitting down to write. Um, as far as ritual or preparation that I do when I'm setting setting up to write, um, <laughs> it's usually I, I wait to see if my dog is asleep. Um, <laughs> I, 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 anyone who follows my Twitter feed knows knows uh, you know uh, my, my my pupster Holly. Uh, she is very spirited, has quite the personality, uh, loves walks, and uh, will have no issues uh, demanding them. Um, so I tend to make sure that she's walked before I, um, before I, 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 I even try to hunker down and write, because otherwise I know she's got a sixth sense. She will make me walk her right as I'm getting ahead of steam, and I'll lose it all. Um, for me, I also, you know, and this speaks to me being a dirty freelancer uh, who works at home. But, um, you know, because I my 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 whole schedule is crazy, you know, like I 
I don't have to go to an office. And so oftentimes I will do some freelance work and then I'll be like, okay, I'm going to start my day. I'm actually going to hop in the shower now uh, before I start to write because that's where I start getting ideas. Like Mm -hmm. I think there's something therapeutic about just being able to stand in the shower and just be like, okay, well, I think about this and oh, this is a cool tagline or here's a cool moment. Um, The other ritual that I have when I'm in the process, especially when things are not flowing, um, I'll listen to, I'll, I'll try to find a song or two that will really kind of sum up the, the, the mood that I'm trying to get into or the headspace or the energy. And I'll put that song on repeat and I'll just kind of let the, 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 the song hit me. I'm not even paying attention necessarily to the lyrics as much as the energy I'm feeling off of it. And then I'll be like, okay, what images are popping in to my head as I'm thinking of this song? Um, so, uh, you know, I, I like I, I I distinctly remember, and it's probably embarrassing to say this. Uh, you know, I listened to the song "Animal" by Maroon Five a lot when I was writing the first Spencer and Law because it's kind of got like almost sort of that like neon noir vibe to it. But it's also you know if you listen to the lyrics, they're talking about you know you know animals like eating each other whole. Um, and I was like, oh, that's you know, while they're they're talking about animals in the sense of people having sex with each other, which is not my book. But I was just kind of like you know that's you know that's that's a cool headspace to get into for this kind of neon noir book and you know whereas for um for uh, uh spencer and Locke too i thought of the song from logan uh way down we go where it's like this very like kind of sad ballad uh you know uh, uh of a guy talking about how his father told him that we get what we deserve um and i was like oh that's like that's that's similar to what i'm thinking of for this series um Whereas like going to the chapel, you know, of course, you know, going to the chapel, thinking of the song. Um, I thought of uh, Bobby V's The Night Has a Thousand Eyes because um, it's kind of got that like kind of that cool, you know, uh, uh, vintage retro energy to it. Um, but, yeah, a lot of it is so much of what I do is trial and error. Um, I describe my writing process as imagine you have you have stepped into your bedroom and the lights are off and you are trying to make your way from the door to your bed. However, on one side of you there's laundry on the other side of you. There are Legos on another side of you. There's broken glass. And on another side of you, there's a nail. And there's really only, <laughs> Oh my God. There's... Do you need a maid? Do you want me right, to come right? to your house? <laughs> and, and so what I, so my way is sort of, I have to kind of make my way. There's usually only one path. That's like, I'm not stepping on anything that's going to hurt yeah. me. And so it's, it's me sort of feeling it out by touch and intuition in a way. And so sometimes there's a little bit of rewriting that goes on. Um, and a lot of times, like I said, I'll sort of bounce ideas off my friends, uh, just being like, Hey, is this a dumb idea? Or like, Hey, is this an idea that would like look weird? Like, is there something I'm, I'm, you know, I'd be missing here. Um, and usually, you know, I, I've got kind of a trusted brain trust of people that I know who they're, their sensibilities and mine aren't always a hundred percent, but we have enough of an overlap that I can kind of say like, okay, like w- we agree on, 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 on enough stuff. And, um, you know, my, my girlfriend, Claire is kind of like, I, she's sort of the number one, uh, person that I bounce stuff off of. She's not, um, actually a diehard comics reader, but, uh, she is, you know, she's a voracious fiction reader. And so I think that's actually super helpful for me as a creator. And it's something that I talk about with it cons all the time is I'm like, I love comics, but like I first off would never date in the industry. And secondly, I, you know, I, 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 I want to have friends that are not in the comics industry. And it's in part because you never want to forget what's accessible 
to people. Hmm. Um, if I if I bounce an idea off of uh, off of Claire, and she's like, I don't get it. it. It's it's then I'm like, okay, then this idea is clearly too esoteric or too complicated that that it doesn't make sense. It's only you know if she's like, yeah, that sounds really cool. Like that's like an emotional hook. I'm like, okay, this is a little bit more universal, and this is a story that I could pitch to a stranger, and they're not just like, oh, okay, that's that's cool, that's interesting. Um, you know, it's 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 the way I do my sales is is that I usually will say, hey, this is familiar to something you like, but here's the human core to it that sets it apart, and this is the thing. This is, you know. You know, the, the, the high concept will only get your foot in the door, but it's the themes that are going to hit people where they live and it's going to keep them coming back. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's, that's Did I answer this question. That's good <laughs> advice for anybody in a creative field. Yeah. Like doing anything. Um, yeah. Comics, writing, podcasts, anything that you're doing uh, creatively, yeah. that is actually a really good way to look at it. Yeah. yeah you know, uh, you know, I think it's very easy in a creative field to get, uh, tunnel vision and to sort yeah. of see your entire life in the lens of this particular uh, of this particular medium. Um, that's why, you know, Brian Edward Hill, um, you know, he's 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 a friend of mine. He's been a, he and I, we, we were we're both from St. Louis. So we, we, we look out for each other. And um, he, you know, he's got a life. He, he's very great. He's excellent at writing comics, but he's got a life outside of it. You know, he mm-hmm. he does stuff in Hollywood, and he does you know he 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 does his own music, and he does his own photography, and uh, you know, and um, I think he's got a, enough of a, a well realized three dimensional life that you know, if something goes crazy in the comic sphere, you know, he's not going to lose a whole lot of sleep over it because he's got a life outside of the comic sphere. Um, and I think it's very easy, uh, especially amongst the younger generation of creators, myself included. Um, it's very easy to get kind of caught up into that Twitter echo chamber where suddenly like everything is about, everything is about comics and everything is about the comics industry and everything's about the comics community and your presence online. Boy, you can get, it's, it's really easy to lose sight of why you're here in the first place when you get all wrapped up in that. So it's, I think it's, it's really important and I'm, I'm very grateful um, that I have people in my life who are not in the comics industry who can sort of uh, give me a little bit of perspective in that regard. Yeah. Alec, you wanted to say something? Oh, me? Yeah, did you did do you have something you wanted to say? Oh, um, I, I I wasn't thinking anything out. Oh, okay. but um, no, but uh, no, that that everything you just said is really um. It, it, it's a testament to what anybody in any creative field, like I said, should learn from. Like right now, I'm trying to write something I haven't really tackled before. Yeah. And um, I'm trying to like take it at, I'm not trying to rush it, trying to take it at my own pace and trying to get in the right mindset. So, yeah, everything you said is just stuff well, we should all take to heart. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. No problem. Um, so we're running a little long, so I'm going to skip. I know I sent you the questions earlier, so I'm going to skip number three and just go straight to number four that I sent yeah. you. Is that okay? Please go for it. 
Okay, so um, this will be my last question then. Um, novels and film are often held up as great works, taught in schools, and mm-hmm. they're praised, and they win all these major awards, and they get film deals and all that other stuff. Comics don't often get the same treatment, and I think that's actually um, a shame. Yeah. Sure. So do you think that comics and graphic novels can be equally as important works as what we consider classic novels? And do you think there's any way that we as a society can begin changing the perception of comics in mainstream media coverage? Yes, um, I think I think they can be equally as important. I I think part of the problem. I've thought about this a little bit. I think part of the reason why we've been running up against this wall is, and maybe this is a little controversial for me to say this, and and hopefully I'm not bending anyone out of shape. And if, if people disagree, please don't light me up on Twitter. I, I, it's, it's it's just <laughs> one man's opinion. Is um, I think comics and graphic novels are different than prose novels. And I think so Mm. often we get caught up in this rat race of trying to seem uh, equitable uh, uh, to to, to novels. Um, When I think they're very, they're obvious, they're they're super different mediums. Um, And and it's one of those things that that, um, I do see people occasionally saying, you know, comics are reading, comics are reading, comics are reading. And I was like, it is reading. It's different reading though. I mean, I don't think anybody should, necessarily advocate you know it's it's there are plenty of 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 reasons to say you know if somebody has a you know is neurotypical for example and you know or or is dealing with you know uh, adhd or add and 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 so you know obviously reading a comic would be better than no reading at all i'm certainly not saying that but reading prose and reading comics they're very different muscles um and so i think I think the tack that mainstream coverage can keep can can keep doing is treating is, is sort of accepting comics as a different art form. And I think that's the hurdle that we have to get over is because right now we're trapped in this sort of we're not quite a novel and we're not quite a film or a TV series. Uh, we're sort of a little bit of both worlds. Um, and so, you know, I I. I don't know, have the answer to that question of how do we sort of overcome that. Um, I think that's something – it's tough because we are – our industry is propped up on serialized superhero storytelling for the most part. Um, you know, It's something like what, 70 percent of the direct market, if maybe even higher. Um, and so that works against comics being seen as sort of you know uh, uh, that level of mainstream entertainment because they, they're, they're, they're designed to be – uh, disposable. Um, you know, it's designed to get the churn out. They're not, you know, a lot of books these days are not designed for the, the, the long tail trade read. Um, you know, I, I, and it's something that I think is very counterintuitive, you know, as a writer, I would always be trying to swing for what's my watchman going to be, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, that's not necessarily the way the industry goes. And to be honest, there are some creators I see who even their creator owned work, it's very much sort of a, you know, what's the IP I can get out there? And I think there are certain publishers that encourage that, and that is less fun to to, to see in the industry. Um, I would much rather, and I get it though. There, there are people who, you know, they've got financial constraints, and they want to, they're they're trying to sort of future proof themselves because if they say, oh, if I've got 15 creator-owned books out in in two years, um, maybe one of them gets turned into a TV show and then I get residuals on that and, and I get to sort of, you know, uh, future proof my career for another 10 years. So there are a lot of considerations that go into it. Um, I think 
being able to celebrate comics as its own unique medium. And I think by I think it's going to take creators avoiding the rat race a little bit uh, of monthly comics. I saw I think it was Jamie McKelvey who was just talking about how he's not doing another monthly after Wicked and the Divine. And good on him. Uh, you know, I know it takes a long time, though, to get to that level of stability that you can do that. Um, you know, uh, and and I think when we start looking at comics in more self-contained scopes, um, you know, things like I mean, you look at at, at, at Raina uh, Teljemeyer. You know, um, she's the most lucrative, successful comics creator on the planet, and there are tons of people in your comic shop who have no idea who she is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think when you look at things like Watchmen or Mouse or even Dark Knight Returns, which is, you know, a riff on, uh, you know, a pre-existing character, standalone stuff is the way to do it. Um, and I think, you know, with Spencer and Locke, I feel like I'm able to have my cake and eat it too. That's part of the reason why when people are like, oh, why'd you call it Spencer and Locke too? And not, you know, Spencer and Locke, the hunt for Roe Triley or whatever. And I said, well, it's the same way the movies do it. You know, um, there's Lethal Weapon, and there's Lethal Weapon 2, and there's Lethal Weapon 3. Um, and, you know, that's a way to sort of have our cake and eat it, too, where it's serialized, but it's serialized in a way that still feels a little more standalone. And, um, but yeah, I think it's 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 tough. Um, and I think some of it's a generational thing. And, you know, we still haven't quite gotten to the point where all of our, you know, all the geeks who grew up reading comics like me, you know, we're not at the New York Times yet. Uh, we're, we're sort of, you know, we're only starting at our toehold in places like entertainment weekly or, or vulture. And, um, it's going to take, it's a generational thing. Unfortunately, it's, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a little biblical in a way where, you know, it's like, you know, it's sometimes you got to wait for that generation to die out and another generation to sort of take up the reins before real change can happen. I, um, I don't know if we're ever going to see it in our lifetime. And, and, you know, I hope the direct market and I hope the comics industry as a whole survives long enough for our kids to start seeing that, uh, that, that, that trend happen. Um, that's why I write the way I write is because that's my goal. Um, but I, uh, yeah, I think, I think there, there are plenty of works out there that are, are, you know, really uniquely suited. I will say, and then I promise I will let you guys go because I've been talking your ears off for two hours. Um, but I, you know, I think some of it is also the way that we're writing our comics. I don't necessarily think that we are always writing our comics with thinking what's the best way to leverage this medium in mind. Um, you know, and that t- ties into I think a lot of people they want their comics to become IP. And again, God bless. I I have no problem with people's comics becoming IP. We, we got option for Spencer and Locke, so I'm not you know I'm not knocking that, but. I want my comics to be the best comics they can possibly be. And if I'm doing my job right um, and these are the best medium for comics, everything else will follow. Um, I don't care how cinematically you write your comic. Um, a good comic is the best way to get your comic turned into a TV show or a movie. It's just make it a good – make it good. Um, and so I think um, it is – becoming a little bit of a lost art form part in, in part because of the ch- the monthly churn that you know people aren't writing comics thinking how's the best way to leverage this particular medium and um i think the more people can do that the more people will be able to treat comics as its own unique award-worthy mainstream kind of art form separate from sort of being a hybrid of prose novels and and tv and film mm-hmm all right. 
one man's opinion. No, it's definitely a great opinion. I'm glad that you were able to sit down and talk with us today. Thank you so much Absolutely. for coming on the show. Yeah. Thank you. No, it was, it was my pleasure. And any listeners uh, listening to this, you know, of course, first off, thank you for listening to me ramble. But secondly, <laughs> uh, you know, pre-orders make or break uh, independent books like mine. So, uh, you know, go into the chapel number one. It's in stores right now. If you go to your local comic shop, please tell them to, to add going to the chapel to your pull list. You can pre-order sure. issues two and three now. Uh, the code for issue two is AUG for August. Uh, AUG 19, uh, 14, 84, 85, and 86. Um, uh, and uh, the code for – actually, I'm sorry. I got my own pre-order, co- uh, pre-order codes wrong. Oh, wow, no. it's been a long day. It's <laughs> AUG 19, 14, 82, 83, and 84. I knew I got that all, all mixed up. And then for issue three, the code is uh, ni- uh, uh, SEP for September, uh, 191367. 68 and 69 um and uh you can follow you can follow me on twitter and instagram at pepos d you can sign up for my brand new newsletter pep talks at, uh, it's really bit. good <laughs> it, thank it's you. really good um uh it's, it's at bit.ly slash pep news um you can also follow going to the chapel on facebook twitter and instagram at go to the chapel it's just one word all spelled out and uh spencer and Locke on facebook twitter and instagram also one word all spelled out uh, but thank you guys so much for having me and thank you for all the support you've given our series it really means the world and um you know uh, i can't wait for you guys to see what we've got cooking for uh, going to the chapel issue too no problem. I, I'm. I'm yeah. uh, I, I definitely want to say that anybody should go pick up th- this book. Like it wasn't one of his intended references, but I, I I got a lot of Smokey and the Bandit vibes off this issue one. So like it, for me, that means a lot because one of my favorite movies of all time, and I'm gonna be sticking with it and reviewing starting from from issue two. But I I, I definitely give this book a, a, a nine point five out of ten. This one rocked it for a first issue. It has a lot in that small amount of time. But once again, I want to thank you, David, for coming on and t- hanging out with us today. Um, oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, like, and I have to thank you both, Kai and Alec, for coming on. This isn't your normal environment in your normal stage, so I appreciate <laughs> you hanging out with us on Panel to Panel today. Thanks for having us. It's been fun. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for bringing us on. Most deaf. So, as always, folks, don't forget that you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at um, on Comics Ground and follow the podcast at PTP underscore podcast. Uh, don't forget that you can check out all of our reviews, our opinion pieces, and everything on our website. Uh, every, almost br- brand new stuff every weekday at oncomicsground.com hyphen between those words. And as always, we will be here on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher for you every week. We will be back uh, next Monday with a brand new episode where Travis and Mary will be back here with me and we'll be talking about the latest comic book news. So we will catch you folks right here next week. Peace out.